Welcome back, everyone. I'm here with Chris Rocchio. Today, we're going to discuss the future of publishing, which is kind of an interesting bit of a almost a cottage industry in terms of the way it operates. But yeah, more than people think. Thanks for having me back, too. Yeah, it's a pleasure. So let's, let's I know on your channel, which is Sun Eater, yep. you, you talked a little bit about this, I think, earlier this week. Now, this Today is June 14th. This probably won't air until sometime in, in July or August. But kind of drafting off of that conversation, what were some of the conclusions that you guys discussed? Yeah, so we we did a stream, me and a couple other folks, about Brandon Sanderson's Kickstarter, right, and the sort of impact that that was having on, on publishing as a whole and what that means for writers, right? Because we read through this whole giant letter you can find on his website where he talks about a lot of his motivations for doing this and his frustrations with publishing and how he thought this Kickstarter project would be an interesting way of sort of, you know, testing some things out. Because, you know, he's big on doing like prestige editions of his books, leather bounds, things like that. And that's something that it's very hard for writers, writers to produce on their own. But also one of his strengths has been, because he is such a big seller, he's able to get his publishers to sort of uh, go out on a limb and, and do some experimenting. But he's sort of the archetype, ultimately, what we were really talking about, of the writer who's also brand manager, right? He has a very clear sense of what Brandon Sanderson is rather than who, right, as a, as a property on the market and what his readers are looking for, which is something I think that publishers, because they're very small companies, right, they might have six employees at the small end, right? They might have up to, I mean, Penguin's probably got a couple hundred, but it's only a couple hundred, mm -hmm. right? By IBM. And so they can't give individual writers the focus and attention that they really deserve and they really need, especially for new writers. And so we were talking generally about how if you are a new writer, right? Or even, even a midlist writer, you really need to be responsible for knowing your own audience because you're going to know it better because you interact with them right? You're going to know better than your publisher ever really will. And so you need to figure out what it is they want, how you can get it to them and, and things like that. And that's what Brandon did with Kickstarter, right? That was so interesting. And of course, netted him $40 million, right? So that was sort of the big, the big takeaway. Of course, I'm not saying everybody can just go make $40 million, right? That's obviously, it's Brandon Sanderson. He's been doing this a while. He's a big following, right? But, but all the same, there's still some generalizable principles, right? You need to sit down and actually listen to, because your readers will write, right? Even if you only have five of them, if you're an email, right? And you're like, well, they want me, maybe they want me to write this story or they want like, why isn't there an audio? Why haven't I got my books on Kobo, right? And you're able to be more, targeted in your marketing and in your marketing approach because you know what your actual customers want, right? And that's something they're not going to hear. If you have a traditional publisher, especially, they're not going to hear up in New York or wherever. Right? So that was sort of the gist of the conversation. So where do you think traditional publishing fits in? So let me just kind of lay out the landscape a little bit. Now, not everybody is a Brandon Sanderson, right? So he right. already has a very large audience that is mainly or is in large part to a his own skills right that's almost all of it but he started out with a traditional publisher that helped him get the initial reach and things like that so he already kind of had an established audience right. so that in mind how does traditional publishing fit into the puzzle piece here and how do you think it's going to evolve going forward 
Well, I don't know what they're going to do because in a lot of ways, traditional publishing from the inside feels like the destination, right? Like traditional publishing, imagine it's a machine. I feel like a lot of the people who show up there feel their job is simply to maintain that machine. It's not to improve the machine. It's not to replace it. It's not to do, it's just to maintain it, right? To keep it functioning. We make books. The books come out every month. Books are, you know, two sheets of cardboard with some paper in between that hasn't changed. So why would we change anything, right? And uh, obviously eBooks sort of complicated that plot. And I don't think in a lot of ways that traditional publishing has really swallowed the eBook, right? As an entity, I don't think they, I think like, you know, there's a pricing issue, which is one of the things that Sanderson wrote about in his letter, right? Is that traditionally published eBooks are, you know, they might be 15 bucks, which for a PDF file is steep, right? And so there's a question of like, what well, can we sell more by like lowering that price? And I think maybe they're going to be a little bit more experimental or flexible with price points and things as, as we move forward. And as things like print on demand or more common, especially with rising costs of paper and things like that. But one of the things I wish that they would do provide sort of resource kits for the writers that they publish, right? So that they're able to have access to maybe some graphic design options and stuff so they can do their own stuff with YouTube or with even with Twitter or Substack or Patreon or whatever, right? So the, the publisher is going to come back to you with on that with, well, look, I only have at maximum 100 employees. How am I going to pay for that? Okay. Right. I have an answer. I have an answer. We've had 20 to 30 years of experience with SaaS, software as a service business models, okay? And there are already companies that are doing this in Silicon Valley, which is why not offer a subscription service where particularly for eBooks, a subscriber can pay an annual fee a year, a monthly fee or whatever, and you price it in such a way that they get all the, you can have different tiering, all the new releases. Okay. Now that would be pricier, right? Because you need to fund it some way, but they could also get, you know, all the new releases from the prior year and something like that. And that way with publishers, you don't have to be so reliant on the Pareto effect that, you know, we, I don't know if we talked about this in a prior episode or offline, but that 20, 20% of your books pay for 80% of your, your revenue. What you can do is you can at least give yourself some stability where you have a pretty fairly steady recurring revenue stream that can fund some of these activities. And then you don't have to worry about this food to mouth sort of thing. So anyway, I didn't mean to say yeah, this number, no, but, no. but they're not even experimenting. They don't even appear to be, even Amazon might, I don't know how Vela works. Yeah, I don't but, either, honestly. I haven't tried it. But yet. Th th that might be a subscription model. But no one else seems to be thinking about these things, and that's one way to in enhance the stability and actually increase the, you know, as an old investment banker, that increases the valuation of your company because for SaaS multiples, it's two times what a legacy multiple is on your revenue. So yeah. anyway, now, just food for thought. I, Go ahead. I didn't mean to I interrupt think the you. The pushback there, right, that we would get from a traditional publisher on that is that the nature of the contracts they have with the the sales fronts, right? Whether that's Amazon.com, whether that's Barnes and Noble, wherever, is going to be such that it would, it, it like legally might make setting up something like that complicated. But that is, of course, a problem to solve. 
it might be right. an expensive problem to solve, but there are some probably there are some impediments that are in place to stop something like that from happening. But if they could do something like that, it would help shore up it would help shore up some revenue for sure. But you're right. I don't think that they are necessarily thinking about changes like that. And that and that was sort of one of the places where we got with the conversation, which is that as a writer, and this is true of indie writers too, because Amazon is not going to do anything for you, right? Because indie writers. Oh, and by the, by the way, just to inject, like Kindle Unlimited certainly does this, right? It's like a subscription service. Oh, uh, sure. So maybe, yeah, that is that is the example, right? If Penguin wanted to do a Penguin Unlimited, they could. And maybe that. that's the contractual barrier you're talking about. Maybe Amazon's already captured the value there. Yeah. Yeah, or or is preventing them from competing in some particular way, right? Because it was the case where when I worked for when I worked for Bain, right, that if we wanted to offer, because Bain used to do all of their ebooks, they would put on a CD that they would sell for hardcovers back in the late '90s and the early aughts. Can't do that anymore because there existed a free edition of that book somewhere, right? And so what the the workaround because Bain wants to maintain their free library, right, which is smaller than it used to be, but they still maintain it is they have to produce a secondary edition that's got its own ISBN and everything, and that's exclusive to their platform, right? As opposed to on, on Amazon as well. And so the book's still available for purchase on other format, on other markets, right? right? But you can get it for free on Bain.com. That's, I think, a level of complexity that like might not scale if you're a penguin and you're trying to put out all this stuff. I just don't have, they might not have enough people to keep up with. I don't know what the exact holdup might be. They may not have even thought of it, right? Giving away stuff for free is often counterintuitive, right? So they, it just may not have occurred to them. But, right, the the reality is that a lot of the onus for this is just going to fall on you, right, as the writer, right? If you want to be the one to provide free short stories, right, or something like that, there's going to be stuff that you need to do to keep your readers engaged. Because I think, and this is something that that's become clearer and clearer to me in, in the years I've been publishing, right, is that sales are obviously where I make my money, but they aren't like important unit of, of, of measure in thinking about my growth as a writer, right? I need to think in terms of readers, right? Because a reader is worth multiple sales, right? Even if I lose a sale on a reader because they went to a library or borrowed the first book from their friend, right? I'm even not that worried about piracy for this reason, right? Because like ultimately you can pirate an ebook but you can't pirate the paperback right like people and readers want to own books right and so if you know i'm sure i've lost a couple of sales to piracy right but it's a statistical non-issue right because what i need are people who are invested in in my work and this is something i think sanderson is really the archetype of is he is because he knows that Brandon Sanderson is a brand, right? And so he can sell eight copies of the same book to readers because he's doing special editions, he's doing a leather bound, and he's doing them years enough apart that he is able to find a lot more income for himself and for his staff. Because, I mean, the man is an HR department, right? I think he's the only author who probably does. And actually, I think, jokes about that in the letter, right? But, like, he's able to turn himself into an institution because he is, I think, thinking in terms of readers, right? Not in terms of, of just sales, right? I'm not saying sales are unimportant, obviously, right? But you can also think about, like, I just started selling t-shirts on my website, right? 
just a couple things, right? It's not a lot of money, but, and there are services, right? Like, like Squarespace that have APIs that will plug into printing services, right? It's not just t-shirts. You can get prints, you can get them to make mugs and things like that. Now, obviously that's not going to be your primary income and you shouldn't get so lost in that, that you're not writing anymore. But if, but if you scale, but if you scale, that stuff has a multiplicative effect and can sometimes be exponential. So it, you were talking about like your YouTube channel as an example, you can make at scale a living. Like there are people who make full-time livings making content like this, which again, everything, like if you have, I'm just making this up. If you have 500,000 subscribers, your number of readers that you get for your books is going to increase, maybe not linearly, but you're going to get some growth that's related to that. And then those readers may buy your, your coffee mugs and your sweatshirt logos on it. And at the same time, you have affiliate revenue from Amazon because they're buying your books from your website. And you might even get branded. So all of it, at the end of the day, you you never know where you're going to get readers, and things like that help you at least drive awareness. Because part of it is it's just that's why traditional publishing has worked in the past is because they had access to distribution and the bookstores and things like that. The question is, is that like does that still matter? Absolutely. How much does it matter now? I don't know. But I didn't mean to. To... But no, I mean, you're right. What you can do, right, by doing a lot of this stuff is build a little ecosystem around you as the writer and as the brand right now, obviously, since you still need to write the books yourself, that's a, a high value skill that doesn't replicate, right? I can't delegate writing Sun Eater books to, you know, I mean, my wife does my web design, right? So she well, 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 actually, actually, I had that thought, like, why not? James Patterson, we were about to that's say probably worth 700 to 800 million dollars doing exactly that. Well, and he did that a long time ago, can, right? But but there's also it, there there is a certain quality that you as an individual artist will bring to whatever, right? That it that doesn't replicate, right? You can absolutely franchise, right? If you wanna, you know, not like like Chris Kennedy has done that, you know, obviously with his with his four horsemen stuff and Mark Wandry. I think Nicole and Jason Ansbach have a couple of writers who work for them too, right? Um, yep. Well, I mean, Nick Nick Nick, Nick Cole and and Jason Ansbach is. Have developed kind of a brand all, all all on their own, right? And that actually raises another question too: Is do you build the brand around you, or do you build it around a media property? So the most common example of this is the Harry Potter series. Like J.K. Rowling has a whole other series of books that nobody really knows about because she's associated with the Harry Potter series. So in terms of that, like which which way do you go? That's a real trick, right? Because I have I have readers ask a lot, right? And this is one of those things that you hear from your readers you need to think about, right? They ask when I'm writing a fantasy series, right? And the answer is I don't know, right? Because I've written I've written this one science fiction. It's kind of a fantasy series, but this one space opera, right? And I do think a lot that like if I make the jump over to fantasy, it's going to be like your favorite metal band putting out a jazz album, right? Now that might be a really awesome jazz album, but if you thought you were getting a metal album in its place, you're disappointed, right? It's not what you wanted. And you've, in a sense, been robbed of that metal album, right? You've been robbed of another science fiction series for me. So there is a pretty strong case to be made for, like, you should figure out what your niche is going to be and stick in it. But at the same time, there isn't a reason that niche can't be pretty idiosyncratic, right? If you as a writer 
are going to be the sort of writer that does a bunch of standalone novels, right? And they and you're distinguished by your tone as a writer, your your actual writing style. That can be the thing that you sort of center your your brand around. But you need to figure out what that brand is, right? If that brand is a setting, if that brand is a series, if it's a genre or whatever, and it's going to be different, right? Depending on what your strengths as an artist are. Then you need to make you need to make those decisions, and you need to really interrogate what it is about your work that makes it uh, appealing, if it's appealing, right? And vice versa, what doesn't, right? But then once you know what that is, you need to sort of stay zeroed in on that. Again, I think that's something that Sanderson, and I'm not a big fan of his work personally, right? I, I don't go in for the really game mechanic feeling, you know, magic stuff. I'm not a big D&D guy, and that's kind of what he writes. But he knows exactly that that's what his audience is looking for, right? He knows that there's an audience for that, and he, and he plays to those strengths, right? And, and he's able to not just, like we said, find marketing tie-in opportunities, right? And merchandising options and things like that, but also to continue to produce the art itself in a direction that that audience wants, right? And so maybe making the jump to fantasy would be a mistake if I want if I made it, right? Maybe I maybe I am a writer who should stay in that setting, right? It is a very big setting. There's a lot of different stuff I can do with it, right? But being willing to 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 take those those leaps, but as an experiment, right? And as a as a study in like how is the audience going to react to it, as opposed to just sort of following your artistic whim. That's not a good way to to strategically think about things. And I know that sucks because like we feel like as writers, as artists, right? That like it should be like all art all the time. But the reality is you need to feed yourself, right? Especially if like me, it's like your job, right? Your full-time job, mm -hmm. right? Then you need to be making some savvy decisions about what you do with your time, right? Whether that's what you what you write, how you promote it, right? And and so that's that was sort of the big takeaway in 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 this whole conversation we had about about the Brandon stream, right? Is that even if you are, you know, traditionally published as I am, right? Like a lot of the responsibility for making these business decisions is gonna fall on your shoulders, right? As the writer. And if you haven't thought about these questions, you haven't thought about what your brand is or who your audience is or how you can stretch. Because a book comes out once a year, right? You might have two books a year. If they're really short, you can have more, but write these giant door stoppers. It's really one or maybe two. That is hard to compete. It, it is hard to compete against YouTube content creators. It's hard to compete against Disney Plus is rolling out a new freaking episode of superheroes or Star Wars every single week, right? If you're only doing one book a year, like you need to keep audience engagement somehow. So like, how do you do that, right? Is that with short stories? Is that with YouTube videos, live streams? Is it with both of those? Is it with neither? Like, what are your options? And those are questions you should ask yourself because if you're the brand, right? And the books are products that you're producing rather than the books being the brand themselves, and that opens up your options, right? There are things that you mm -hmm. should be thinking about. And I mean, you know, you've got a YouTube channel. I've got a YouTube channel, right? Those are, that is an answer to like things you can provide readers. Just speaking to them, answering their questions, talking about books, right? That is stuff that that readers like to hear, right? And they like to hear from the writers more than they do from reviewers, right? So there are very few writers, especially TradPub writers who are on YouTube at the moment, right? So I, I feel like I've managed to be a bigger voice in a smaller room there. I mean, there's competition, obviously, but it's not like Twitter where literally everyone on Twitter is a writer, right? Like there's no point right. of, of, about books at all in my opinion. And it's hard. It's hard. It's still hard. It was easier to grow on Twitter 
a decade ago. Now it's just it's just slow and and hard. Yeah. Right? Whereas YouTube is it appears to be more merit based. I don't know if that's the case, but I feel like it. it YouTube throttle or not YouTube, uh, Twitter throttles certain types of of people versus others. Whereas sure. YouTube generally doesn't, unless I mean. There are instances where they might, but for the most part, it is more meritocratic than many other platforms. Yeah, it's more laissez-faire. It's also more humanizing, I found, too, Yeah. right? And this isn't going to work for every writer. Like, you might not be a very social person. You might not be a very good speaker or something like that. But if you are, you're you're reading your audience as, as an individual, right? They can see your face. They can hear your voice. And that is... I think something that writers haven't had access, well, they obviously haven't really had access to at any point earlier in history, right? It, you know, you might, if you were Asimov, you might go and do an interview on NBC or something, right? But even even then, right, it's mostly going to be mainstream stuff. It's not going to be genre fiction guys like you and me. So this is a pretty new opportunity. And being able to present yourself as a as a person to your readers is is I think exciting. I think it's I think it's useful. And I think it helps to really keep that audience that you've already, you already have, right? Because you're seeing them on a more regular basis. And more importantly, they're seeing you. So, All right, my friend, always a pleasure to have you on the show. And it was very good to hear some of your wisdom on this because you're definitely building a brand and you're going through all the, all, the, all the stuff you need to do. I think more people, if they want to succeed in this industry, it really helps you generate an audience. So thank you again, my friend. Yeah, thanks, man. I appreciate that. I hope you're right about me. So and thanks for having yeah, me. Yeah, I, I hope so too. Talk to you soon. You bet. If you enjoyed this video, hit like and subscribe, and I'll see you next time.